Hello and welcome to another episode of On War, the podcast. Tonight, Austin and I delve into a 19th century story of intrigue, high diplomacy, and accidental politics that was the great game in Central Asia. Is this an allegory for real politic and the power of diplomatic and intelligence services, or one of the power of personalities and happenstance? So, um, we're finally back again, aren't we, Austin? That that took a little while. Yeah, it's, it always seems to, to be a little bit odd um, when things get away from you in real life. It's been one of those things for um, me, especially lately. I don't know, you've been you the standard level of busy, but I've been really taken away from the game, so I'd just like to take the opportunity to apologize to our audience um at the end of the day like we said at the end of last season this is a hobby for us and as much as we love doing it it's just one of those things you, there comes times where you got to put your hobby down for a little while and and focus on real life and in my case it's been phd applications and uh my first ever article is now actually up for review i'm not going to go into more detail about that until it passes review but if it does there will be a reference on the uh, on the blog, when that happens, sometime in the far off future, that's that's future me's problem. But needless to say, I've been distracted, and particularly as um, I have to do the editing and things of the show, that that puts everything on a standstill. So it is what it is. Uh, we're sorry it's taken us this long to get there, uh, but it's not the end of on war, as a, as we said on the the Facebook post. We're pushing forward, but if you're a dedicated listener, this probably will not be the last time this happens. And it's just, I'm sure many of our listeners are students, they know what it's like, it's just one of those things. We'll try and be more communicative about it when it does happen, uh, but again, I haven't logged onto the Facebook until I put that up because I kept thinking it was going to happen next weekend, and next weekend never happened. So, we're back, we're here, uh, what did we say we were going to do again, Austin? It's been so long I forget. Uh, so what we're looking at this week, Alistair, is we're looking at the great game, which is a fancy way of saying what we're looking at is... Russo-UK rivalry from about the 1500s all the way up until the late 1800s. It's one of those things that people sort of forgot in the wake of the First World War, um, but it's a fascinating piece of, of geopolitics. And a lot of what we look at there when we look at how modern interpretations of how states interact with each other, the concept of a proxy war, very much what we see in the, the modern Cold War. There's a lot of parallels to be seen in the great game. And so it's going to be a really interesting topic to go through and hopefully it'll prompt some discussion. What I've always conceived of the great game has been surrounding the actual actions within this particular and, and other kind of competitions and conflicts. So I've always seen the great game as that to and fro of, of high diplomacy, of um, subterfuge and espionage as the thing unto itself. I was aware of the period it was being practiced and the place it was being practiced, but my understanding was not the great game as the great game in Central Asia, but rather just the practice of the game itself. And, and this is something that comes from a number of sources. Uh, Sherlock Holmes talks about the game being afoot, and a lot of the original stories um, and some of the remakes talk about um, all sorts of uh, aspects of that, including actually the characters, um, Dr. Watson's, Watson's experiences in Afghanistan. But also Rudyard Kipling's Kim. There's a lot of ideas of, of what the game is that's kind of permeated sort of our society. So it's it's important to realize that this there's sort of two things going on here. One, the game um, as this sort of uh, personification of realpolitik, but also the great game as a very constrained piece of history in a very particular place in a very particular time. Something I wasn't 
fully aware of. Yeah, again, I mean, there's there's always a danger when you look at historical events to sort of conflate them with, with more modern events. But what we're seeing here and what Alice is talking about and sort of dancing around a little bit is the fact that what we understand of the great game, so to speak, um, a lot of that comes from discourse. The term itself comes from Kipling's work. And if you look at the actual historical origins of the great game, that period in history, we're looking at an event that really both states stumbled into. There's no, like, defined, right, we're in the great game. It's a conscious decision on the part of the state. Um, and that's really interesting if you see how they've both sort of stumbled into this. And we've also, I'd say in sort of a modern context, we've really added um, some boundaries to what we consider the great game that weren't, wouldn't have been apparent to state makers on the ground. The other thing is that the whole concept of the game is um, a very Western and, in, in fact, a very, very English establishment concept. This idea of, a, of an intellectual pursuit of the highest order especially for the gentlemen of the cultured establishment, in comparison to perhaps more brutish physical conflict through force of arms, is, you know, th this is not necessarily how the Russians then or even now conceive of the same issue. This is a very Western and a very, very English idea of, of what politics is, what real politics is, and how it's carried out. It's also the first conflict we see in sort of Central Asia, um, with proto-imperialist powers using what we would now look at as paramilitary forces and spies throughout the Napoleonic period. And this is one of those things that in history has sort of really only come to the fore in the last 20 years or so, is that what we're starting to see is the emergence of what becomes the British intelligence agencies. And what we're seeing is the transition from Napoleonic exploratory officers or explorers to much more obvious military intelligence and so when you look at how the great games played out, it's quite often played out by individuals, individual military officers and, and what we would now consider spies that are operating what is effectively a series of proxy wars between minor states and internal politics in order to advance what we, what we would now call real politics. So that allusion to the Napoleonic Wars is a good lead-in. I signposted my sort of general ignorance about this particular period of history earlier, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Austin, is that the bounded kind of idea of the great game in the 19th century emerges directly out of um, the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, where Great Britain and Russia are almost the only ones sort of left standing at the end of it. The other powers are going to reemerge throughout the period of the, of the great game, but immediate, in the immediate aftermath, Russia's not doing too badly, England's not doing too badly, and the rest of continental Europe's still sort of piecing itself back together and figuring out what it's going to be. And this means that the, that combined with the growth of colonialism, and particular Britain's obsession with India and the resources available there, refocuses the new competition, the, the post-Napoleonic struggle to Central Asia and India, and then, of course, Britain's attention to Russia as, as now a, one of the few kind of dominant powers left. Is this a, a fair generalization? As a generalisation of this period, yeah, it is. This sort of period starts with a post-Napoleonic world order, but it actually goes a little bit uh, backwards, particularly if you look at the Russian aspect of it and the Russian viewpoint. Where it's sort of some things that need to be added to it are the fact that from the 1500s, you've got Russian uh, rulers and the czars that are taking over vast tracts of land and expanding what we know as the Russian Empire. And I'd encourage listeners to have a look 
just Google the extent of the Russian Empire. It was quite a substantial land empire at its peak. One of the things that's ongoing and enduring is Russian rivalry with the Ottoman Empire and other Central Asian powers. And we see there's a series of an ongoing rivalry in a series of Russian-Ottoman conflicts that end in about 1829 with the Treaty of Andronopol. Basically, what the Russians are after here is an ability to create their own environment to have an economic powerhouse. The Russians never had overseas colonies, with the exception of some little islands in Alaska. What they had instead was that they were the largest and most important land power in Europe. And so by the time of the Napoleonic Wars, one of the things that we don't sort of see in modern history and mainstream tellings of the Napoleonic Wars is the fact that when Napoleon invaded Russia, that was a culmination of A, the continental system, which he was trying to blockade Britain, and B, it was after he'd tried to convince Paul and then subsequently Alexander I, who were the Tsars of Russia, to invade India. Now, the reason for this is twofold. One, from a geopolitical standpoint, it was, as you point out, the jewel of, of the British Empire. But secondly, you have to remember that Napoleon had a weird fascination with India. There's a an excerpt in his sort of memoirs from his time in Egypt where he has he tells of a dream he had of him marching through India on an elephant carrying his own version of the Quran. And he was quite set at one point in his life on taking away India and forging a new French empire in that region. Now, while Alexander didn't agree to take India, the English never really forgot. And so what happens after the Napoleonic Wars is England's trying to rebuild in the last 15 or so years in a ruinously expensive war. Immediately after the Napoleonic Wars, they're still embroiled in the War of 1812 in the, with the US. And so they don't really have a lot of structure, of security of their empire, nor do they have the military resources to obtain it. And so what we start to see is these explorer officers that are typically working for the East India Company start to say, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, into this sort of quasi-murky area that's now modern Afghanistan, Persia, and the various Sands, for want of a better word. Now, originally, the British didn't actually believe this to be the case, and it took a while for the British Empire to actually wake up and view this as a threat. A large portion of these British officers, by the way, didn't come back. This is a period in time where Afghanistan and the various other regions, including Persia, weren't structured societies. They were incredibly dangerous places run by tribes. And so we had... It was quite a dangerous job for these officers. Several of them died, including we have an instance in as late as 1841 where a British officer by the name of Major Broadfoot is recorded to have been shot dead by a mob and left to die and be eaten by stray dogs in the middle of Afghanistan. This is the sort of environment they're operating in. You'd actually only have two or three or sometimes as many as five or six officers in these expeditions. They were conducted undercover, often disguised as local tradespeople in order to get through what was a, a fairly lawless region and where the, the prestige of the British Empire didn't hold a lot of weight. What the British are trying to do at this point after they start to realise, ooh, after the Treaty of Andropol, the Russians might be coming, is they attempt to use Persia, so modern-day Iran, basically, and Afghanistan as buffer regions. Um, in a very similar 
concept to Australia's forward defence doctrine in the 1970s. What that leads to, of course, is a bunch of what we would now call regime change, but the British just called good policy, which, of course, led to the First Anglo-Afghan War. In between uh, the First Anglo-Afghan War and and where else is going to pipe in in a second, because I know you're all sick of, of my voice at this point, is the Crimean War. And so up to this point, we see a widening gap between Russia's prestige after defeating Napoleon. And I can't understate the amount of prestige the Russians had as a land force at this time. And the reality, their army had actually uh, decreased quite substantially in atrophy over that time. There was quite substantive unrest and they were being left behind by the Industrial Revolution. So this all comes to a head in the Crimean War, where they suffer a quite a humiliating and unexpected defeat at the hands of a combined Anglo-French force. It's interesting just looking at this period, and, and while you've been talking and, and the research I've done as well in the background of this, the comparisons you can draw between uh, this period and, of course, the situation between Russia and America after World War II, the, the Cold War. And you've you triggered this, of course, Austin, with an earlier comment uh, last week about the, this being the first true Cold War. Russia did not have, during the Cold War, the same kind of over, overseas influence uh, that America had, for example, throughout the Pacific as a result of occupying Japan and the, uh, their bases and the Marshall Islands and so on. And there was a perception of the on behalf of the Americans, which, is, which was not necessarily completely the case, of a, of a spreading domino effect of communism, fueled, of course, from Moscow as a sort of communist international spread. So there's a lot of parallels you can draw between these two kind of situations, and Russia is at the center of them both times, and its intentions at both periods, they're not necessarily benign, but they're certainly not the uh, expansionist doctrine that's being espoused by the, the Western players in these particular conflicts. No, not at all, and I think, you know, you've got to realize that, and again, this is on a normative judgment, but we're not talking about major structured societies in a European sense. So the Russians, who at this point in the 1830s have only just began to try to secure a warm water port in, into the Mediterranean, into the, the, um, the quite economically rich areas of the colonies and trade, they have to protect that ability and they have to protect the vital trade routes they have between Russia and India because there's quite a lot of trade going on there at this time. And so it's interesting that you talk about parallels because one of the biggest parallels is that this stage of the great game comes to a close with an 1873 agreement between the UK and Russia that recognises spheres of influence that effectively say Afghanistan, as we know it now, is in the influence of the British, but everything north of that is in the influence of the Russians. And so that's where we're at at this point in time, before we get to things like the Second Anglo-Afghan War, where the Russian um, continued attempts to secure their trade, and to be completely honest, they were also trying to secure and expand their influence in Central Asia, led the British to overreact quite a lot. Yeah. Now, the danger with these kinds of narratives, these grand stories of, of the world, is that they can quite easily and, uh, and far too quickly fall into binary oppositions. Um, in this case, Britain and Russia, 
um, in the case of the Cold War, Russia and um, America, or, or if you want to, in the case of the Cold War, you could paint an even bigger ideological story of communism versus capitalism. The problem here is that, of course, there are other communities, um, particularly other com political communities, in the middle of this, and they have their own agency too. So the example I draw to in an area I'm now getting into a bit more f um, familiarity with history-wise would be the Second Anglo-Afghan War. Now, at this point in the great game, we've come to uh, a situation where both parties have invo involved in, in various sort of little expeditions, both um, covert and military. And Afghanistan's gone through a period particularly of upheaval in, in the aftermath of the first um, Afghan war. Things aren't necessarily going perfectly in India either for the Brits. Um, and in 1857, of course, we have the Indian mutiny. And in Russia, this is perceived as the kind of the highlight of instability. They see Britain as, as being effectively weak in governing India. And, and all that's going to be needed for that to be destabilized, not necessarily for them to take over, but for British uh, power to decline, is to increase their own prestige in the region and to increase pressure on the people involved. And to do that, what they decide to do is establish an embassy in Afghanistan. This provokes, and I'm giving you the cliff notes of this conflict, but this provokes a British response. And the Brits send down their own force to demand entry to um, Afghanistan and demand their own embassy, which the Afghan emir denies. The Brits then force their way in in what is the Second Anglo-Afghan War. In the middle of this, by the way, the Russians see the situation as, as spiraling out of control. They hadn't expected the British to respond so forcefully. The strength within India, and they, they misunderstood the weakness in India. So this combination leaves, leads them to quietly exit stage left and, and just disappear with their embassy. So the Brits wind up in a second Anglo-Afghan war, and the Russians are nowhere to be found. Well, the Russian exit isn't all that surprising, because if you consider what else is going on in the Russian Empire at this point, their great enemy, and from the Russians' perspective, their long-term enemy is the Ottoman Empire, actually um, sparks up again. And they have a yet another Russia-Turkish war occur during this period between 1870, 1877 and 1878. And so they're focused there. There's a war going on in the Balkans that they have to fight, and they won. Um, and they effectively get a number of territories in what is now the Southern Caucasus. But it's not surprising, of course, that with that happening, they would detract from any sort of potential conflict um, with the British. And what's important to remember as we go on through the next couple of years is that in 1881, which is only three years later than what we're talking about here when we talk about the Second Af Anglo-Afghan War, Alexander II is assassinated by a Russian anarchist group. In fact, it's the first time, interestingly enough, that an assassination is conducted on a head of state by a terrorist organization using explosives. And so for this whole period, the Russians are effectively sitting on the sidelines of a conflict they provoked um, without any actual meaningful capability to take advantage of it. In that context, it's it's unsurprising that they didn't want to fight a contested war in Afghanistan against the British with no telling of how the locals were going to fall down. This this point about the locals brings up uh, another point about the agency of the other actors here that I want to return to. So at this point, we're in Afghanistan. The Russians are withdrawn, and the Second Afghan War has been fought and won. Brits have come in. Um, they've deposed the sitting emir, Sher Ali, and he's returned to his own home and dies there. His son 
is put in place by the Brit um, the Brits, and he signs the Treaty of Gandamak in May 1879. And the Brits gain control of the region, but they rule through a sort of a puppet government. But crucially, it's given them the northwestern frontier, which includes both the famous Khyber Pass and the Machini Pass as well. Now, in September, a local uprising pops up and kills the British representative, Louis Cavanari, as well as his whole staff. So this triggers a second um, British military intervention to suppress the revolt, and then they really take a back seat and, and try and rule through the puppet government. Now, there's someone else in this story we haven't mentioned yet, uh, and that's uh, Abdur Rahman Khan. Now, Khan was the brother of Sher Ali, who had been deposed by the British in the, at the um, outset of the Second Afghan War. But he'd been involved in an earlier insurrection against his um, younger brother um, a f- about 20 years early. He'd escaped to uh, Russian-controlled Tashkent and had been living there in exile. Now, in 1880, he sees what's going on in Afghanistan. The Russians weren't quite sure what to do with him. There'd been some discussion about whether or not he'd been use- he would be useful to return there to make hell for the British. But from what my research shows, that, that plan never actually gets acted on. Instead, he quietly sit, um, slips out himself, and the Russians just decide to play a blind eye. It's not their fault. It's not their problem anymore. As Austin's alluded to, they've got bigger ones anyway. Yes, uh, Alexander II gets assassinated less than six months after um, Khan leaves at Russia. So they've got bigger problems. The British see him returning, and though they think that they might be, he might be in the pay of the Russians, in the aftermath of the Kavanari incident, they're in need of a strong leader for Afghanistan that they can, they can rule. So eventually, in order to sort of punish um, his nephew for... Uh, the Kavanari incident and to try and consolidate their rule in Afghanistan, they decide to support him and he takes control almost immediately. At this point, he states, starts taking money from both sides and he's the actual winner of this particular period of the great game as far as anyone can tell because at this point, the Brits take a, a step back from the northwest frontier. It's not really necessary for them anymore. India is well and truly secure and the Russians have, have been preoccupied. As Austin's pointed out, the Russians at this point, especially after the assassination of Alexander II, they've got their own issues. But he's able to set up, set himself up as the ruler of Afghanistan, taking money and particularly firearms from the British and money from both sides, and expand and consolidate his position very, very quickly and very, very solidly. So the point I'm trying to make with this little anecdote here is that with the great game and with any of these narratives, you have to be careful at how these situations occur and what the story is being told, what the the discourse of the narrative paints as the major players. Because in this situation, what you had is an accident of chance. Uh, Raman Khan slips out of Tashkent, unbeknownst to the Russians, but they decide to play a blind eye for their reasons. The British see him coming, and although they're suspicious of his relationship with the Russians, decide to support him for their reasons. These are two players of the great game doing entirely different things for entirely different reasons, you know, the, the so-called pawn in the great game, um, Raman Khan himself, is actually playing both sides. And again, this is a story you can draw parallels between this um, and other figures and other similar conflicts around the world. It's very important that we don't paint ourselves into a corner where we're looking at just two sides of any conflict. Very rarely do, do any conflicts, hot or cold, have only just two sides on them. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, the the message that comes from the great game is that 
any sort of conflict, any sort of period of conflict, and particularly when we're looking at this, what we're looking at is a period of several conflicts, can be of different importance to different areas. To the British, once they figured out what was going on, this became a major political but also cultural issue. Look at, again, Sherlock Holmes, um, Kipling's work as well. And Kipling was, of course, famously one of the foremost novel writers of the period. But to the Russians, this was often a side game that was occurring. And in fact, for large portions of the great game, there's no real evidence that they knew what was going on or particularly cared. Um, so you can see here a, a distinction between what the Western view, or in this case, the British view of a series of conflicts is, what the Russian view might be, and what the view of the people on the ground, like Khan is, or like Ho Chi Minh, or like Noriega, where it can be simply an opportunity, a risky opportunity, but an opportunity nonetheless. And what we see during this period is the emergence of modern states like Afghanistan and like some of the other stands in the Southern Caucasus. And so you can see how a lot of these um, events have started to shape the way that the West and superpowers interact with these regions, Afghanistan, obviously, but also places like Iran. And this kind of brings me back to my original point about terminology and great games versus the great game. Immediately after the conclusion of this great game, we see a rise of a continental great game, which brings in the, the emergent powers of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the German Empire, the re-emergent power of France, buoyed partly by their alliance with the British in the Crimean War. And this plays out right up until, of course, the First World War breaks out. In the Middle East, we see a, a much smaller game being played during World War I between very similar shadowy figures of an emergent British intelligence service in the Cairo department, which is a group of eclectic um, British officers, including the famous um, T.E. Lawrence, although he's actually a minor figure, the India office as a separate organization, a colonial governing organization, and the government in England as well, over what to do about Mesopotamia, which is now modern-day Iraq, and the Arabian Peninsula. This plays out for all sorts of reasons, harshly by accident, um, into the forming of Iraq, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and Syria, which was under French control for a period. So what the Great Game allows for me particularly is, or in fact any discussion of these 19th century political games, is a window into the way high politics is played by a culture of, of individuals and organizations who see it as such. But I think that's important. The Great Game is often talked about in the modern international relations school, and if you're lucky enough to have one of those lecturers that will actually talk about this, and most don't. They'll talk about this as a very neo-realist approach, right? It's a very realist. We're talking about the, the game of states, you know, the great game, the chess game that's occurring between states. But if you actually look at the history of the great game, what it actually teaches us is quite different. And that's, it gives us an insight into what happens when individuals start to play on the great powers stage. The great game is absolutely littered with individuals and discourse that is very much based on characterization and narrative. I mean, Alistair mentioned T.E. Lawrence, of course, is most famous despite his relatively minor role for the discourse that surrounds him and the narrative he built around himself. Another example of what we talk about here is Orde Wingate, who was merely a colonel and then brigadier in the British Army during the Second World War, but He's a large reason, large part of the reason 
for militarized action in the current Israel-Arab conflict. What my point is here is that I think that the great game is easy to dismiss as simply a chess game between two states. But what it can be, and what if you delve into it, I think, what it can show is the influence of these you know, emerging mavericks that take their own approach to this concept that are set out into the, the political wilds, for want of a better word, and they really start to pull their nation in a particular direction. They play their own game of chess on a very small board that affects a wider area. And we see that repeated throughout history. So we do see these individuals popping up and having all sorts of effects. I guess it's important here to, to point out that their role in politics can be incredibly influential or the stories can rapidly outstrip their um, their actual influence. Lawrence is my favorite example of this because my area of interest is, is in the Middle East. He, the stories of his exploits are huge, you, but he was a very small cog in a broader um, institution, the Cairo Department, and that actual department never achieved its vision of a British um, puppet Arab empire spanning the Arabian Peninsula all the way to Mesopotamia, it lost its little part of its its great game to the needs of higher state of England and France. And Russia was involved too until they got distracted by internal affairs, this time the Russian Revolution. By the same token, though, this kind of game, if we were, say, the great game of grand diplomacy as opposed to the great game in Central Asia, has a sort of never-ending quality grounded in major states as players and in geopolitics. The idea of this great game or this kind of competition reappearing in World War One discussions of the Middle East is one example of this. The Soviet Union's involvement in the in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And even there was a resurgence of, a, of the discussion of the, the great game as the new great game in the 1990s, again, centered around um, Central Asia and, and the, the future of that particular region in the aftermath of the Cold War. So it's one of these narratives that it's it's very... It's a wonderfully romantic story. It involves all the wonderful things we love of drama, of of maverick individuals swanning their way, gentlemen soldiers and dashing intelligence officers and so on, swanning their way around the, the colonies of, of great games of intrigue and deception. And so they're pervasive in our understanding of politics, but we have to be careful about how they're applied and what we draw out of them. Absolutely. I think that... Arguably, the narrative we get out of the great game, this concept of a, a chessboard being played by states as homogenous entities, is actually the least important thing to come out of this conflict, um, of this rivalry. Think for a second on, on one of the other examples that, that wasn't mentioned, which is the Yalta Conference. This is the first time that Persia and modern-day Iran becomes a centrepiece in international relations. It's the first time it's talked about as a geopolitical linchpin. And then it reappears as part of the Allies' efforts to stop Germany during the Second World War. We look at further back from this when you talk about Napoleon literally thinking that he was going to rewrite the entire religion of Islam, install himself as a new prophet, and march across Central Asia. There is a fascinating array of lessons to be learned here in this conflict, which, like the Napoleonic Wars in general, like the Revolutionary Wars again further up, is vastly under-researched and under-explored. And I think 
that's part of I think what Alistair's driving at is that there's so much more layers to this conflict as opposed to the the narrative that's it spawned that are worthy for I mean either of us Alistair or one of our listeners to actually explore. And so that's that'd be my sort of takeaway from this is that there's so much of this that hasn't really been looked at in modern scholarship. The final thing I'd say that I've personally taken up um, out of researching this and it's it's reinforced an understanding that I've had for a while. If you want to look for a really concrete example of why these kinds of conflicts appear again and again, it's not to be found necessarily in the stories we tell of past rivalries or any of the enduring narratives, but in geopolitics. The ground doesn't change. The fact that these concerns have popped up again and again with different actors replace Russia with the Soviet Union, replace Britain with America, points to the fact that we're on a, a fairly confined space on this planet, and whenever you have different powers vying for control of area, that space becomes partly the deciding factor. Well, that's all we've got time for tonight. Sadly, our scheduling over the next few weeks is only going to get more intense as another semester comes to a close, so I can't let you know exactly what will come next or when. I can promise, at least, that you'll hear from us again in early November at the very latest. In the meantime, if you want to stay in the loop or discuss this or any of our episodes, you can find our social media links, including our subreddit, in the comments section below. The sources for today's episodes, including some fascinating accounts written during the great game itself, can be found on our blog. As always, thank you for listening, and good night.